Hey friends, welcome to the Brave Marriage Podcast. I'm Kenzie Dzinski, a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified professional coach. And this is a podcast for couples who want to grow as individuals, do marriage with intention, and live mutually empowered, purposeful lives. Last week, we began a series on common themes that I encounter in my practice, and today, I'd like to talk about the all-too-common expectation couples have that their partner is responsible for their personal happiness. There's this unspoken expectation sometimes that our spouses are responsible for keeping us happy and feeling in love. Now, when I say this out loud, I think most of us would agree that this is unrealistic, but think about your own relationship for a second. Have you ever felt unhappy in your marriage? Not even long-term, just momentarily unhappy. Next question. Have you ever inadvertently blamed your spouse for the way that you feel? Have you ever said to yourself, if my spouse were just different, or if he or she hadn't have done that, then I wouldn't be upset or unhappy right now? Or why doesn't he or she care more? If he did, he'd be going out of his way to make me feel cherished, or she'd be going out of her way to love me better than this. Well, if you've ever had this experience as I have, then this episode is for you. There are so many things I want to say about this topic, but before we jump in with action steps in this area, I think we need to start with an understanding of where these unrealistic expectations and false notions come from in the first place. I remember listening to a podcast interview last year with Esther Perel, a relationship and sex therapist, and she was talking about all of the pressure placed on the marriage relationship. Because in today's society, we look to our spouse to meet nearly all of our emotional and psychological needs in ways that couples for centuries before us did not. To quote Perel, she says, As almost all of our communal institutions give way to a heightened sense of individualism, we look more frequently to our partner to provide the emotional and physical resources that a village or community used to provide. So if we're really to understand why our spouses are not responsible for our happiness in the ways that we define it today, I think we first have to get clear on how we got here, on what this means in terms of our unrealistic expectations, and then have a discussion on what it looks like to grow and what to do about this issue moving forward. So a brief history lesson. Prior to the 1880s, the majority of couples were marrying according to what made sense to a couple's family's legacy in terms of gaining mutual social standing, property, at least for the men, and financial well-being for women. Because women prior to the late 1800s didn't have the right to own property, and before the 1900s, they didn't have the right to vote either. So it was important at that time for women to shape their lives in an effort to be suitable partners for future husbands if they wished to have a spouse to take care of them. So marriage prior to the 1800s was less about romantic love and more about securing a mutually satisfying exchange, safety and security for women, and property and status for men. But in the mid-1700s to 1800s, this was during the Romantic period in the Victorian era, so many expressions of art, music, literature began to be marked by a new focus on emotionalism and individualism, leading to a massive shift in Western culture whereby more couples began marrying for love in lieu of, or in addition to, upleveling their status in the community. A perfect example of this dynamic for this time period is the book Little Women, 
which exemplifies the change in times as four sisters navigate the changing social and relational dynamics and ultimately make somewhat radical choices for their day. After wrestling with their upbringing, cultural conditioning, and the changing zeitgeist, these little women ended up marrying for love, whether stability and security came with the spouses they chose or not. I reference this book-turned-movie because what it demonstrates so well is how, as times change, so do people. So do the social constructs that make up our society. These cultural changes brought men and women more freedom, more choice, more risk and reward. And when it came to marriage, it brought a greater expectation then for spouses to meet each other's every need, not just for physiological safety and financial security as before, but now couples were also expected to meet each other's needs for love, for belonging, for self-esteem. Are you with me so far? So by the end of the 19th century, we see more and more couples marrying for love, which sounds like a huge advancement to us Westerners who continue to value both romance and individualism. But what we have to understand is that as couples, we don't sit outside of space or time. We're situated within a larger social system as well as a certain time in history. We continue to value these things not because they're somehow inherent to marriage, but because they're woven into the fabric of our society, and thus they influence the way we do marriage in healthy and unhealthy ways. So as we move into the 1900s, we have the Industrial Revolution taking place, which meant new divisions among the working middle and upper classes. We have fewer families working and living in agrarian lifestyles and transitioning into a more industrialized lifestyle, where marital roles are more split than before. And we have new and changing roles, responsibilities, and opportunities in the workplace and at home. That is, depending on how you looked at it and where you were class-wise. Add to that the sexual revolution in the women's rights movement of the 1960s and 70s, and you can see how confusing it would be to try and sort through how to do love and marriage well in a socioeconomic context unlike history has ever seen. And what I want you to realize is that culturally, we've not made this shift well. Number one, because so many cultural and societal changes have occurred in the past 200 years that it's really quite hard to keep up. And number two, because these changes are so recent and they're still ongoing. So we've not upgraded our software, if you will, when it comes to how we think about and live out healthy marriages. There's a massive incongruence between the realities of love and marriage as they play out in an ever-transitioning time and culture in the philosophies and expectations for love and marriage, as expressed during the Victorian era and the Romantic period, which still largely influence Hollywood notions of love and marriage today, by the way. So I hope it's becoming clear that as a society, and I would dare say that as a church, we've yet to define marital happiness in a healthy and realistic way. We've yet to make explicit how our unattainable expectations are negatively impacting our marriages. And we haven't yet made the paradigm shift or understood a helpful framework for moving away from this false notion that my spouse is responsible for my happiness. So I want to talk briefly about happiness and expectations and then pull these concepts into next week's episode as we talk about a framework to help us grow beyond this false notion that our spouses are responsible for us. 
Let's start with happiness. Culturally, happiness has been defined by the good, positive feelings associated with attaining whatever it is outside of ourselves that we've determined makes us feel this way. But the problem with that is, most of us don't consciously define that for ourselves. Instead, it's culturally defined, which means many of us end up living with this vague notion that getting more of something outside of us will ultimately and somehow make us happy. Whether it's love, sex, money, power, influence, followers, or status. But what we don't often talk about is the fact that we as individuals, especially today, with all the freedom, privilege, and security we take for granted, determine what will be required to make us happy within the space and time God has given us. See, I think our happiness is influenced by two things. Number one, the maximum level of psychological need available to us at any given time. And number two, the awareness of our ability to choose our expectations and subsequently choose contentment and happiness or not. Regarding our happiness as influenced by the maximum level of psychological satisfaction available to us at any given time, I want you to think in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Back in the 60s, Maslow said that in order for us to achieve a psychological state of self-actualization, we first have to have some self-esteem. In order to have a healthy sense of self-esteem, we first have to feel like we are loved and like we belong. In order to sense psychologically that we're loved and that we belong, we first have to have our basic need of safety and security met. And finally, in order to even worry about safety and security, we have to be getting our basic needs met, like food, water, sleep. So if we were alive in the 17 or 1800s, we would have defined happiness in marriage by the maximum level of psychological satisfaction available to us at that time, which would have meant we would be happy to have our needs for food, water, shelter, safety and security, and maybe love and belonging met. But in the matter of a century, we went from defining happiness by those things, and then as our freedom, security, and privileges increased, We added to our definition of happiness the need for self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-worth, and the desire to feel perfectly loved, just like in the movies, right? But here's the catch. Because we've structured our lives so independently from one another, this leaves one primary relationship for those of us who are married on which to place all of our weighty expectations. So now, marriage has become more than a construct to help us feel happy by providing for our basic needs. It's now a construct expected to help us meet our every need for love, belonging, self-esteem, and self-actualization. And these are real and legitimate needs. That's not what I'm saying. I think it's a privilege that we live in a space and time where we can worry about getting those needs met because all of our ones underneath that are taken care of. Does that make sense? at least for those of us listening to this podcast. But the problem lies in us expecting to get all of those needs met within our marriage relationships. To quote Esther Perel in her book, The State of Affairs, she says, contained within the small circle of the wedding band are vastly contradictory ideals. We want our chosen one to offer stability, safety, predictability, and dependability, and we want that very same person To supply awe, mystery, adventure, and risk. 
And you guys, that's an incredible amount of pressure to place on one singular relationship. No one person is meant to carry or care for our every psychological, emotional, and relational need, except for Jesus. So when we expect our spouses to, it creates an incredible amount of pressure and strain on our marriages, not to mention an incredible amount of discontentment and disappointment in our love lives. I hope you're beginning to see, in part, how we've ended up here, as well as how problematic this dynamic is to our marriages, to expect our spouses to bear the weight of providing for our personal happiness. But here's my question to you. What if we became more aware? What if we finally made some of these contradictions explicit and used them to help us take back some choice in the matter? Right? Because none of us sets out to destroy our marriages with such high expectations. It's the lack of awareness of the problem that destroys our marriages. This happens every single day in my office. Couples come in gridlocked around what they think is the problem. That my spouse isn't making me feel loved enough, supported enough, cared for enough, taken care of enough, fulfilled enough, sexually satisfied enough. But that's not actually the problem. The problem is that the dissatisfied partner has yet to define what's enough for him or her in any area. On top of that, both partners have agreed that this wrong problem is the problem, and they're fighting this battle to win both love and personal happiness from the other. And if you've ever been engaged in this battle, as I have, you know how it ends. It's a losing one for both partners. But... What if couples were to understand that the problem does not lie within their spouse's ability or inability to meet their relational needs or to speak their proper love language, but instead the problem lies within their own lack of self-awareness, of self-definition, and of self-efficacy, meaning their own ability to choose happiness, to choose realistic expectations, to choose their own self-talk, to define enough and contentment for themselves so that they can get over and on with their married life together to enjoy all that God has for them as individuals and as a couple and to begin living into a mission and purpose greater than themselves. Something to think on and talk about this coming week. In summary, there is an incredible amount of pressure today on the marriage relationship to provide unattainable levels of love, happiness, and satisfaction. We now have more freedom and marital choice than ever before, paired with a shift out of communal social structures and into more isolated social structures, which has led to a significant pressure on the marriage relationship to provide all the things that an entire community once did. And because of the romantic and Victorian ideals embedded in our cultural psychology, not to mention in our practical theology, our expectations for happiness are off as are our expectations for marriage. Basically, we are still dealing with the ramifications of all these changes that have occurred over the past 200 years, both culturally and as a church. So my call to action this week is to think about how these things play out in your own life. Trust me, I'll give you plenty of examples from my own life and marriage next week. But think about these concepts. Talk about them with your spouse, with your small group. Attempt to make these contradictions more explicit so that you and your spouse can gain freedom from potentially some of the constraints that you didn't even know were there that have been holding you back 
from the lives that God intended you to live. And I'll be back next week to offer a better model for marriage than holding our spouses hostage for our happiness. (laughs) This is one of those episodes that I feel especially passionate about. And if you find yourself feeling that same way, would you consider sharing this episode? If you would, please leave a rating, review, and share this content so that more people know it exists. Thank you guys so much. My prayer for us this week is that we would look to Christ alone for freedom, for true happiness, and fulfillment. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Love is not about Love is not a bond Love is just as fragile as it is.